0: And that was 1948-1949. And it continued to be a tense situation, obviously, sometimes more so and sometimes less. And uh, and the big changing event occurred in 1967. And in, uh, in the lead-up of the months of the first part of that year, the president of Egypt, uh, President Masser, a great uh, famous figure in uh, Arab nationalism, began to uh, make noises about sort of cutting off Israel's ability to, for instance, come to its port in the south, um, in the sea there, or use the Suez Canal, that any ships that were coming uh, for Israel that way could, wouldn't be allowed to go there, and to really attempt to, to besiege the country. And um, it was not clear if he really intended to initiate a war of conquest or what, but um, Israel was very, very fearful, and what they ended up doing in the beginning of June was to launch a, uh, a surprise strike. They attacked the air forces of of Syria and of Egypt and destroyed them on the ground. And in order to prevent this, what looked like an invasion from all these Egyptian forces that were on their borders, they launched a a counter-attack. And as a result of that war, Israel took all the rest of the territories that had been part of Palestine and occupied them, as well as this big desert of Sinai, which had been part of Egypt. And uh, it was uh, just, um, again, sort of a striking, Development. The stories that I have heard are that in the first couple of days of the war, in order to preserve the element of surprise, Israel did not allow any news. There was a news blackout from Israel, and I know hearing about American Jews, and maybe you you remember this, that um, that all the news was coming out of the Arab countries, and it was about you know the, their their victorious armies and uh, the the flames burning in Tel Aviv or in Haifa, and Jews over here were very fearful that this was it, this was the destruction of Israel. And then they sort of turned the lights on and it turned out to be be something different. And what happened after the 67 war was that partly the Israelis thought that, well, there were these two conflicting ideas. One was the thought that, well, now, maybe now that we've shown that we're, that we're here and we're, we're staying here, um, we could um, make a deal and give back the lands um, that are primarily Arab lands in return for a peace agreement. That was one feeling. And the first gesture of that was in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was a city divided by barbed wire uh, between where the armies had stopped in, in the first war. And all the holy sites were in the eastern section, ruled by the Arabs. And um, so Israel uh, decided to allow the Muslim authorities to um, have control over the mountain where the temples had stood and the holy mosques of Islam were, um, so that that area wouldn't be crawling with Israeli soldiers, but would be um, at least administered by the Muslim authorities, even though that's a very, very holy site in Judaism. And the intent was to make offers of, of peace, um, land for peace, as we say. And, uh, but there was also a group of Israelis who thought, well, the lands that we've taken over are, are are biblical they go back to, to our scriptures and um, surely jews should live there how could you say that that in the land of israel a jew can't live in the city of Hebron, where where abraham and sarah lived or in the city of Jehem, um called nablus today where where our father jacob lived you know surely jews should be able to live everywhere and there was a sense of returning to the heritage these two things going on within the jews but in any case the arabs at this point said um no, uh, no negotiations, no recognition even that Israel is a, a place that, that is legitimate to belong there. And they prepared for more and more wars, and more and more wars ensued. The, the War of 1973, which was a surprise attack from the Arabs on Yom Kippur. And, um, uh, but finally, the, big, the next big breakthrough came in uh, 1978 when President Sadat of Egypt uh, surprised everybody by announcing he was willing to go to the Israeli Knesset, to the parliament, and and say, I'm willing to, to make peace with you. And he was welcomed by Prime Minister Begin, who was very much a hardliner, a right-winger. And eventually President Carter of the United States brokered this uh, agreement where Israel would withdraw from the, the Sinai, return that to Egypt, and there would be peace. And for the first time, a peace agreement between uh between Israel and, a, uh, and an Arab country. It was a historic, uh, historic, historic change. And immediately there became, you know, flow of, of tourism. The Sinai, too, is very historic for Israel. Mount Sinai, where the where the Ten Commandments were given, and, and, uh, and all of that historic resonance. So through the 80s, there was this uh, peace, but also continued conflict between uh, Israel and the Arabs and the territories that Israel ruled. So imagine having somehow... A uh, military occupation for now coming up on 20 some years um, over a local population who had no interest in being Israelis and um, uh, very much a tense situation. And uh, there was the, the breakout again of a local revolts called the Intifada in 1987, uh, stirring of kind of um, on the ground nationalistic. Fervor by the Palestinians and that led to that moment in 1993 eventually where suddenly um, the Israelis made a, a Decision to um, deal with a group of people they used to call terrorists and the Palestinians made an agreement to Made agreement to recognize Israel as a legitimate State as a place that was actually going to be there and that was justified being there and um, so they tried to create an agreement where they would build relations with each other and create confidence in each other. Israel would gradually withdraw from some areas, the Palestinians would gradually take over, show that they had no intention for war, and that somehow, bit by bit, they would come to an understanding of how to live together and how to have two different, uh, two different governments in two different areas. And that was supposed to be completed by 1998, um, but it wasn't um, for any number of reasons. And that's kind of put us where we are today. So you know, from my point of view, there have been a lot of moves on the part of the Israelis to offer peace and to and to hold out a hand of peace, and um, it's been less at the time the willingness of the uh, of the Arabs, either the local Palestinian Arabs or the other some of the other Arab nations, to, to return that. Um, um, the one thing I will uh, make note of that's uh, that's also kind of interesting is that there was a a near a near miss. Um, and about the, in the year 2000, the last year of President Clinton's um, administration, there was an attempt to uh, finalize this negotiation. And so once again, as President Carter had done, the leaders were brought to Camp David, um, Prime Minister Barak of Israel and um, President Arafat of the Palestinians. And the Israelis made this offer sort of based on the West Bank, um, which was to take certain areas that were, had become very Jewish <laughs> and attach them to Israel, but to return the rest of the areas to the Palestinians. And it was very much a, um, well, I don't know, it was a serious offer. And um, and in some sense is the offer that the Palestinians would like to hear now, um, the deal they would like to accept now, but in 2000, President Arafat decided not to accept it. And so I always wonder how it is that people can say the Israelis are not serious about making peace, when they really have made a substantial um, a substantial offer of uh, Palestinian independence that was not accepted and uh, that's you know again from my point of view of bias and and the way in which I, I weep for the Palestinians who in the decades since have suffered uh, by living again under an occupation and under uh, very very difficult economic situation because their leaders have not um, have not come forward and accepted these possibilities of peace um, it's my perspective on that in the last few days while we've heard about skirmishes we've also heard that the idea of there being face-to-face negotiations is getting closer uh, between uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has always been considered a hardliner, who we never thought would deal with the Palestinians, but he says, yes, he will. And uh, President Abbas of the Palestinians, who in his past was considered by, by many to be a, a terrorist, but he too has, has come forward as someone who's a, a voice for, for peace within the Palestinians. So, uh, so I don't give up. Um, I'm very hopeful, Um, it's not that I'm hopeful that I think it's necessarily going to happen right now, but I am uh, eager on behalf of all the people who live there for an end to their conflict, for an end to death, which is needless, Um, and for a time when uh, that area can be not only a peaceful area, but even maybe a source and a teaching of peace um, for people everywhere. Um, It is the biblical place where Jews and Muslims and Christians look for inspiration if Peace can take hold there. I think the effect on the world would be would be inc- incredibly profound. Um, not to mention the effect on many of us who have friends and family who live in that region. So I think I'll take a, a pause there and see if you want to ask me any questions. And I'll try to be informative based on information. And I will try not to be only the uh, the editorial page. So. Yes. That's it. How much influence do the other authors? Well, it's an interesting. The question is: the ultra-orthodox Jews in Israel—do they have a great influence on the, the way that conflict will uh, will play out? And and in a way that they in a way they do. Um, first of all, the way the Israeli governmental system is set up, you don't vote for, you know, a representative from Jerusalem or from Tel Aviv. If you vote for, uh, nationally, they all vote for a party, and the the Knesset, the parliament, is allotted proportionally. So imagine if we just voted for. Democrats and Republicans and um, nationwide, and then according to that percentage, that's how the, that's how the legislatures were, uh, were divided. So, uh, so no one ever gets a majority on their own, and they have to deal with each other. And the uh, orthodox and ultra-orthodox political groups have small numbers in the parliament, but they're the balance. They're the ones who can make a majority for somebody. And um, many of them hold that the land of Israel is sacred you know, from God and cannot be given away. That's a voice that that many of them have and they exert that voice in the government. There is also a group of religious Jews who are also in the government who believe that the question of whether the land is spiritual has nothing to do with whether uh, the Israeli government rules it. They feel that the only real government in the eyes of God is when the Messiah will come and the Israeli government is just a group of people and that uh, the land could be holy even if the Israeli army doesn't patrol it. So um, there is some hope that the ultra-Orthodox, particularly the, the Sephardic, the Eastern Jews, um, whose leaders hold that second view, might be willing to, um, again, on their, on their side, trade land for peace because they don't believe that the, uh, that the state of Israel is holy in and of itself. Yeah. I'm a little confused. That you know you've pointed out all the offers that Israel has made, and yet uh, I keep reading about uh, uh, Israeli uh, settlements being built in what presumably is Palestinian areas. Uh, this wall that is is built to separate the two groups, and and so forth. So uh, I'm. I don't quite see how you reconcile those two views. Yeah, it's uh, that's a suspicion that many people have that uh, that the Israeli some people say the Israelis speak out of two sides of their mouth, and um, so the, the question of uh, the Israelis in the forty three years uh, since the sixty seven war have built towns in the areas that were um, that were in the Arab sector, and. Um, and I think, truthfully, that this, uh, on the whole, has been a has been a negative has been a negative thing. It has created suspicion. Um, in some cases, it's been blatantly taking land that belongs to other people just by just by police force or military force. The argument that the settlers have is that mm-hmm. this has always been contested. The United Nations didn't say it belonged to Jordan or anybody, and that it's all up for negotiations. And what the Israeli government has been offering is to take take many of those towns away. Um, if there was an agreement to draw the line somewhere that any Israeli city on that area would be dismantled. And there is some precedent. So in, in 2005, I believe it was, when, um, when the Israelis withdrew from the Gaza Strip, they, they took all the people out of the towns, the Jewish towns in the Gaza Strip, and they even uh, took away most of the buildings. So there is, some, there is some precedent for the idea that Israel could unbuild the settlements um but uh but they are a cause of suspicion and they actually have destroyed some some uh land and ancient farmland and and groves of of trees that have belonged to arabs and uh and so i can understand how someone who uh i can understand the suspicion that people would have about that yeah is there uh, more and more thinking that there should be two states there should be a separate yeah, what, what's remarkable if you, since the late 80s is how much of the Israeli public has come to that view. Um, at this point, there are three large political parties in Israel, and they all, it used to be that there were two, one of which eventually supported that idea of, two, of a Palestinian state and one didn't. Now there are three parties, and they all are on record supporting a Palestinian state. Um, the fear now is that the, is that is that the time on that will run out. The fear is that um, we know that the Palestinians are growing faster than the Israelis are, more children. Um, and there is a fear that if an agreement isn't reached soon, the number of Palestinians who live in this area will simply more and more outnumber the number of Jews, and, they, and at which point they would say, why would we, we just simply the majority would take over the whole place? So I think it's in the interests of the Israelis to, to draw a line and to, and to separate from that point of view uh, because uh, so some people have suggested that the, the two-state solution will, is not there forever and will turn into a one-state solution and that would be a majority Arab state um, which again is uh, you know from some people's point of view I suppose is okay from a Jewish point of view it would seem to make more sense to protect the, the, the Jewish area that needs to be protected. bit about the boycott and the business. Remember the flotilla that came, and then they they sent the commandos out. To yes, yeah. Out. So, um, in the, the the thing that was in the in the news a few months ago, it's I guess it's less than a few months ago, is that um, the Palestinians themselves are divided into kind of two major camps. One of which is a uh, governed by a you know radical. Religiously Islamist organization who are dedicated to the imposing Islamic law on their society and um, and don't re- and and to driving out the Jews from the whole area of Palestine and that's called Hamas, and they govern in the area of the, the Gaza Strip. They took over that control of that in sort of a, a, a fighting with their fellow Palestinians, and the West Bank is under the hold of President Abbas and his. Um, and his uh, and his government, which is recognized in the uh, negotiations so far, and um, so one of the things that the Hamas have done in Gaza is, for a long time, they were shooting rockets into Israel um, and falling on Israeli towns and um, uh, you know into civilian areas. And so Israel had imposed a boycott just on the Gaza area to try to bring this um, regime, if you want to call it, um, down to starve it of support and. Uh, and make sure that uh, it doesn't prosper. And uh, so, so those people who only see that part of the picture uh, say that well, Israel is you know strangling and, and starving the people who live in Gaza, and they've organized these boats, these flotillas of supplies, um, to come and uh, supply Gaza because um, uh, in order to bring to bring food and other things to Gaza, Israel does allow um, certain things to go into Gaza, but um, under you know under its monitoring and um so what happened was uh when this particular flotilla came and the israelis attempted to d- divert it to israel to unload its cargo and to, and to promise to deliver the the appropriate uh, peaceful stuff they uh there was a fighting between the boats and the israeli soldiers and um, it was discovered that some of the things that were being brought to gaza were not were not food and, and supplies at all but weaponry and, uh, and things that were, that were meant for uh, you know, offensive use and, again, against Israeli civilians. And um, so Israel at the time said, we're willing to allow supplies, humanitarian supplies, to go into Gaza, but not um, things that will help Hamas or military material. And now what's happening is that there's an international investigation going on by the United Nations to see what, well, what happened there, why was there fighting, um, and should that is someone at fault? Um, and is this legitimate, um, a legitimate, legitimate thing that Israel does there? Uh, but the blockade is meant to, it is meant to try to put pressure on the Hamas government of Gaza in order to, um, because it's an enemy government, and it's meant to uh, to try to put it out of power. But I don't know. Did do do I answer your question? Anything else? It's a, uh, uh, it's a complicated topic and hard, as I say, to, uh, to find good and impartial information on. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in many ways, uh, I have many, well, I should say I have my suspicions of some, you know, CNN or National Public Radio, and I otherwise love CNN or National <laughs> Public Radio, but uh, we're always on the look for, uh, for things that are reported with, uh, for me, the issue is of information and also of context. Um, and events, all of this, all of the events in the news have to be seen in their, their widest context. And I think as you try to keep educated about this, if it's of interest to you, it's to try to look not only at the event of the day, which is important, to make sure that's factually reported, but to remember, uh, if possible, to link it to the wider context. I'm hoping that context goes forward, as I say, too, toward toward peaceful talks and negotiations. I cannot believe the stubbornness of these leaders who say, you know, I won't sit in a room with him unless he promises ahead of time that I'll do this or that. Um, and, uh, but certainly, uh, it is everybody's hope and prayer that these things will, uh, will lead to a point where we can consider this the, the past and an academic study. But, uh, but anyway, thank you for listening to the presentation and uh, for your wonderful questions. This is the postscript I'm adding. There was one more question which was asked after the tape came off, which was how one gets good news about the Middle East. And I mentioned that um, one of the things that I like to do is to look at sources like the New York Times, even though sometimes I'm a little concerned about what I think are biases in the reporting. But the way I correct for that is to balance it out by reading some Israeli news sources. The one I prefer particularly is uh, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, H-A-A-R-E-T-Z, dot uh, com online. It's in an English version, too. And usually by that, or you can read the Jerusalem Post as well, um, you get a sense of what the news looks like from Israeli perspective as well. Um, Haaretz happens to be uh, fairly balanced in the sense that it's sometimes critical and sometimes supportive of the things that go on in the Israeli news. But, but I wouldn't discount the New York Times at all, and um, it's not necessary to avoid CNN, even though I do happen to think that their reporting sometimes is, is biased.